Dotnet Rocks episode 735 with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded live Tuesday, January 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's January, it's cold, and I got a cold still. Nice. Yeah. But that doesn't really matter. We're having fun. We're going to learn a lot about uh, web security in this hour with Troy Hunt coming right up. What's up with you, Richard? I do not have a cold. I feel just fine, but maybe I'll jinx myself right now. Yeah, you never you never want to say that. Never you? say that. Oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you treat your cold? Uh, chili pepper, scotch, and chocolate. Dark N- chocolate. Nice. Seems to work for me. Uh, I I like my neosinephrine. Just hit me, hit it. I you know I'm a big believer in if you take cold drugs, it'll take about a week to get if you're cold. But if you don't take anything, it'll take about seven days. Yeah, it's funny. There you go. You know everybody's like echinacea, echinacea, and there's been studies that proven it. It's no better than the placebo effect. Yeah. So don't bother. Um, uh, whatever gets you going. And I personally don't mind the amphetamine side of uh, modern cold drugs. Well, you just don't care. That's yeah. all. But, you know, um, Sudafed works for, for me for congestion, but you can't get it. They look at you like you're cooking meth. It's like, I got a cold. Come yeah. on. Do I need to sneeze on you? Is do that what really, they think? Do, can I prove to you that, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry you're suffering, my friend, but I'm glad you're here. I'm not suffering my face is chapped but i'm okay other than that let's just dive into better know framework and i got some good stuff to share Woo-hoo. so i keep looking on codeplex for stuff and and the very first the very you know what the most popular uh download on codeplex is no the wbfs manager I think I might have talked about this a little bit before, but WBFS, if you go to Wikipedia or just search for it, Mm -hmm. is essentially the Wii backup file system. It's developed by a Wii homebrew coders that um, essentially allows you to copy your DVDs, your Wii DVDs onto a hard drive and then launch them from that hard drive. So the WBFS manager... Uh, provides a GUI for working with hard disk drives that have been formatted to use the the WBFS file system. And that is the most popular of all time. Nice. Download on codeplex.com. 6,118,000 downloads. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you're a Wii person. Yeah, that's sort of the ultimate Wii geek out tool for developers yeah go nuts well i mean in some ways it feels like the equivalent of the connect sdk right same sort of dynamic yep exactly homebrew yeah no kidding well who's talking to us richard very cool dug back in the show stack a little bit okay well not that far show 704 way back in the 700s way back a half a year or so you know ago uh that was uh philip loreno uh programming in nemerly right 
And I grab a comment from Johan Ulrich, who says, uh, thanks for a very interesting episode. Nemerly was immediately promoted to the top of my must-try list. A similar system could be very interesting for writing some high-performance stuff in non-IL languages. Constructing headers, GP, GPU, or inline assemblers comes to mind. Another interesting thing is the thought of personal compilers. You get to work with a system you really know and that's optimized for your way of doing things. A problem could be cooperation and working on the same code with other people, but there should be some sort of solution to that problem. Yeah, hmm. use the .NET compilers. <laughs> for example. Uh, and again, thanks for a great podcast. Well, Johan, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We got a few good comments off of the Nemerly Show because, let's face it, Philip is way out there. He's yeah. thinking about, this is a guy who reads IL for fun. Yeah. So, uh, A, needs a hobby. And B... <laughs> Uh, yeah, very, very smart guy. So we'll find more guys like that. And I'm going to send a mug to you. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com. Yeah. And while you're at it, sign up for the .NET Rocks fan club. We'll uh, be giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection later in the show. Uh, and we got to talk to Troy. But first, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those that appear on our show. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial where you can access their library for 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on web development with over 20 courses on ASP.NET development and 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce Troy. Troy Hunt is a software architect and Microsoft MVP for developer security. Troy spent the last 16 years building web apps and currently oversees software architecture for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals emerging markets. He blogs regularly about security principles in software development at troyhunt.com and is the author of OWASP, O-W-A-S-P. I don't know how you pronounce that, Troy, but he'll tell us. OWASP. Top 10 for .NET Developers Series, and recently, the free ebook of the same name. Troy is also the creator of AsafaWeb. He's going to tell us how to pronounce that, too. The <laughs> automated security analyzer for ASP.NET websites at AsafaWeb.com. AsafaWeb. Is that right, Troy? AsafaWeb? You know, I haven't fully decided, guys. I, I, I think maybe a, a, a safer web, but I'm hearing a lot of different ways. Lately. Oh, a safer web. I like a safe. That's a safer web than what I had before. Nice. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, it's one thing that you've built an acronym. It's another thing that you can pronounce the acronym. Yeah. Two different issues. All right. Now, how do you pronounce OWASP or OASP? Well, I've heard that two different ways as well. I, for some reason, I keep thinking OWASP, but then other people I know say OWASP, and one sort of sounds like the bug, so yeah. it makes sense. And then, you know, so I, I think people know what I'm talking about either way, and I'm happy with that. I like OW, ASP. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> OW. OW. Oh, man. So, OWASP. Top 10 for .NET developers. This was your landmark series. Tell us about this. Yeah, well, look, uh, OWASP or, or OWASP, whichever way we <laughs> want to go, is the Open Web Application Security Project. 
And these guys have put together a, an open not-for-profit foundation to talk about web security in a very generic technology agnostic fashion. And they've laid down a, a bunch of risks and they call these the top 10 application security risks. And this is a really fantastic resource. It goes through things like injection and lack of transport security and all the things that people are probably reasonably familiar with. But they put it in a really nice structured way and they prioritize it in terms of risks. And that's fantastic and it's a really good read. But I really wanted to get something that was a little bit more specific to the .NET community. Sure. Because what I was finding is I'd say to people, hey, go and have a look at at OWASP and you know go through the top 10 and, and make sure you you know you tick all the boxes and you, you'd sort of get these blank stares sometimes to go yeah you know look um, injection okay that's that's great I, I think I understand it but without that sort of very language specific step by step this is what I need to do in order to protect against injection uh, I think they were having a, a little bit of trouble putting it together so I really wanted to go through and actually create a resource that people could use that was very, very practical. And I also wanted to go through myself and, and just get under the covers and see how these things work. So, you know, we know, for example, uh, passwords that are only hashed and not salted are at risk of brute force, but how do you do that? What does that look like? Same yeah. for something like uh, intercepting unencrypted traffic. How do you actually do that? So I wanted to go through and actually break the thing and then fix it and then show everybody, okay, well, this is how, uh, in our favorite programming language, we actually mitigate against these risks. And that's where the series came from. And so now it's in a free PDF format and uh, you can just go ahead and download it at troyhunt.com. Can you can you give us a sort of a walkthrough of the, um, uh, of the, the topics in here and give us some nuggets that we can glean without having to read it? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, the top 10, so there are 10 different vulnerabilities. So we, we start out with injection, uh, and injection is normally going to mean SQL injection for us. It might mean uh, LDAP injection or any sort of query language injection where we can actually uh, manipulate the execution of the query in a malicious way. So, you know, in a, in a .NET world, we're looking at things like parameterized SQL. We're looking at uh, Entity Framework or, or any other sort of ORM that, that breaks things down in parameters rather mm. than allowing an attacker to start concatenating a query, uh, yeah. number one. So number two, we go on to uh, cross-site scripting. I think most people are probably pretty familiar with it. And keep in mind, these are order of prevalence as well. So cross-site scripting is pretty prevalent. And then we're talking about... Cross-site scripting is uh, what happens when somebody gets a hold of the JavaScript that's running in your browser. And when you click link X, where you think it's going to take you, oh, I don't know, to the next page of the thing that you're reading. And it takes you to some website where some crazy stuff is installed. And that happens mostly when... Your, uh, your, you don't have a firewall. Is it, can a firewall prevent cross-site scripting, or is it, does it go through firewalls? No, it's it's not really a, a firewall thing, and the cross-site scripting will will hit you in a couple of different ways. So there's a reflective cross-site scripting where somebody will give you a link, and that link, sort of the classic cross-site scripting example we see, that link might have some JavaScript which uh, will execute on the browser. It'll pop up an alert or something. Uh, and that's just embedded in the URL simply because the application is taking that query string from the URL 
writing it directly to the page so an attacker can actually start to control the markup or the JavaScript on the page. So you, so or it's, ca- so it's basically happens when a website gets hacked. Is that basically how it happens? Yeah, you could consider it a hack, but that particular uh, cross-site scripting example doesn't necessarily mean any files on the server have been compromised or anything unauthorized has been accessed. And in fact, the app is really just doing what it was designed to do. It's taking input in the URL and and putting it on the page. The other form of cross-site scripting, though, is what you'd call a persistent cross-site scripting attack where an attacker actually gets uh, markup into the database, which can then do a similar thing. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, so that- I'm concerned about where it originates from. So does it happen when somebody gets an email that says, you know, hey, do you want to buy some real, you know, how about we're giving away free iPads or something like classic stuff. And that email has a link that, you know, that has all the bugs in it. But generally speaking, though, I mean, a publisher of a website doesn't put nasty URLs on their website because they have um, a URL. They're traceable. They're, you know, they're they're out there saying, this is us. Here we are. Contact us. You know, so how how does where does it originate from? So receiving an email to a malicious site, you know, those guys don't necessarily need to try and use somewhere legitimate to to launch an attack from. They can just link you straight off to, you know, evilsite.com where they're promoting the free iPad and all you've got to do is, you know, finish this survey or download this little piece of software and everything will be okay. The thing about cross-site scripting is it is using a legitimate site and it's just exploiting flaws in that site and those flaws might allow an attacker to do things like steal cookies. And once you can steal cookies, well, then there's a risk that you can steal sessions or you can steal other pieces of information that might be stored in those cookies. Okay. So it really comes down to security on the site to prevent somebody from using it in a cross-site scripting attack. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to remember as well, with cross-site scripting, this sort of malicious, untrusted data can come from a lot of different places. So yeah. it could come from uh, the URL, it could come from a form, it could come from uh, headers, request headers, it could come from an EXIF tag or an ID3 tag on a file. So basically any channel in which data comes to the application is at risk. I see. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked about this kind of stuff. And SQL injection is fairly understandable. The the classic example is, you know, when you when you have a, a form where it says enter your your username and password or your email and password and uh the 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 code behind that will simply concatenate a SQL query on the fly from the input and then a hacker can say, you know, go <laughs> right there and then create a whole nother query which if the the security permits on the website can do just about anything so what is the what what's the third what's the third uh application security risk so number three out of the top 10 is a little bit generic and they talk about broken authentication and session management so keeping in mind, again, that, that OWASP is pretty technology uh, agnostic, if we put this in a .NET context, the sort of things that might lead us to broken authentication or session management might be things like uh, rolling your own authentication system 
and not using the built-in membership provider. So a lot of the time when people try to create their own security controls, particularly when they're redundant with really good ones built into the framework, that, that can actually uh, present a risk of sessions being hijacked uh, and other nasty things happening in the app. So what I've talked about in my writing is, hey, look, let's try and use as much of the goodness that's in the framework as possible. So the membership provider gives us straight out of the box the ability to uh, register, the ability to secure passwords as uh, salted hashes, mm. log on, password reset. You know, all this stuff is in there already. Right. So the great thing about it is not only is this a nice thing for security, it saves you a lot of time. You know, you're in there and you've got the whole thing up and running in five minutes, an entire uh, membership and authentication model. But it's also strong. If you get a cross-site exploit that now grabs your cookie successfully, they can't use it because it's salted. They've already done that in the membership provider. Yeah, so the persistent storage of that password uh, is salted. You know, that is a salted hash. If someone grabs that database, you're safe. Now, the interesting thing is, is that there are still cookies that can be grabbed and sessions hijacked. So there's still an ASPX auth cookie right. that can be grabbed uh, and stolen. But that's, you know, we'll talk about that when we get down to secure transport encryption. Okay. Yeah. So, look, you know, other, other things that fall into broken authentication session management, things like uh, maximizing password strength. Now, this is obviously not a, a, a .NET objective. It's just a, a good common practice. Um, and there are a lot of other things, you know, making sure we use password resets, never emailing password plain text, uh, being cautious about things like remember me functions. And, you know, this is one of the themes that comes up with security, things like a remember me function is awesome for usability, right? I mean, you're, you're straight in there. It's a very, very right. low barrier to entry. But then you trade off and you go, okay, well, that means somebody else could come along and, and use the machine. And it's the same when we talk about things like session timeouts or sliding expiration. Right. Uh, they're nice little usability things, but if we can kind of curtail those a little bit, we're going to be a bit more secure. Okay. Bottom line, use the native bits. Don't roll your own. Yeah, as soon as you're writing more, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and what do you consider a secure password these days? You know, there's lots of, I, I, I'm surprised how many websites now insist on, you know, between six and 12 characters must have an uppercase, must have a lowercase, must have a punctuation, must have a number. And, <laughs> and I don't think that's that secure a password. Well, you know, it's interesting. This one's a bit of a, it's, it's probably one of those religious debates. Um, so look, from my perspective, particularly for us and for the people listening to this podcast, we have a lot of online accounts. I think I've got something like 150 online accounts in my password manager. So that is a whole heap of accounts. Now, I have absolutely no hope of remembering those passwords. So the best I can do is try and create a few really strong passwords that I use in instances where I have to type them in. So when I log onto my PC, I have to type it in. Uh, and then what I do is use a password manager. There's some really good password managers out there. So things like 1Password, uh, LastPass, both of those guys are, are very well proven, very stable. And I then create crazy big long random passwords. And yeah. the tools have features to do that. But if we sort of get to this point where we're saying, hey, let's make passwords that we can remember, you just can't do it uniquely and you can't do it consistently. And what happens is you start to reuse, 
you reuse them on one bad site that gets exploited and then suddenly you've sort of handed out the keys to all your other sites. So I think there's got to be a little bit of a balance. You know, you can't just unfortunately have one password for everything. The, the reality of it is that's not going to work, but you can have a few and for the vast majority, don't try and remember and put them in a password manager. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One, they're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, I think one of the biggest pitfalls we fall into when picking passwords is we take we make compound words from regular words, which in a dictionary attack, those are easily hacked. And, uh, and then just switch, you know, zero for O and one for I or L. And those are also easily hacked with a dictionary attack. So my thing is to, yeah, go ahead and make compound words, but make them nonsense. You know, make them words that don't exist. Make up your own words and then add your strong characters or whatever. But I think that makes a, and, and if you make it memorable, you know, nonsense that's memorable. Then, uh, then I think it's, then, then you're out of the, um, dictionary attack risk range. Yeah. The, the problem is the bad guys know these tricks, right? <laughs> you know, they've, they've seen all of this happen. When we had the Stratfor incident, uh, only back at Christmas, what we found is the guys behind that were using a password list that had uh, 30 million dictionary passwords in there. And a password dictionary doesn't necessarily mean it's it's your Oxford or your Cambridge or something like that. These are passwords that have been used across all sorts of other exploits. So, you know, people are sort of putting together these lists of real-world passwords that have lots of sort of letter substitution and, you know, zeros instead of O's and that sort of thing, uh, and then using these in order to exploit other systems. So just sort of thinking, hey, it's not in the dictionary or it doesn't really make sense, uh, unfortunately doesn't doesn't give you any guarantees either. But they were using really bad passwords on Stratfor, weren't they? Like one, two, three, four, five, six. You know. Oh yeah. Administration, yeah, <laughs> law enforcement. You know well, that kind of stuff. How I have an account on Stratfor that was one of the ones that was exploited, uh, and I put a fairly simple password in there because there's no value in Stratfor, right? It's just access to their writing. The, the main point here is I didn't use that password anywhere else. It's a simple password, right? It's yeah. and, and because if you break into my Stratfor account, <laughs> all you get is access to Stratfor. The real issue is, did you use that password somewhere else? You used it for Facebook, and now they have access to your Facebook. Yeah, and that, that's the big problem. Uh, you know, last year, Sony had a lot of problems. <laughs> many, many times, I had a lot of problems. And in one of those breaches last year, Sony Pictures was breached. Um, now, apparently, these guys stored all the passwords in plain text, so nice. that was obviously a, a pretty easy breach. So after that came out, I did a bit of analysis and put up a blog post on that. 
And some of the things I found about the way people were using passwords were, were pretty amazing. So things like 93% of the passwords were between six and 10 characters. Right. And that's right in the sweet spot of what a rainbow table is going to do. Yeah. And to the, to the same effect, it was less than 1% of passwords that had a non-alphanumeric character. So, you know, a, a period or a bracket. Or, or something like that. So, you know, people were, were was just creating very, very simple passwords. And it, it may be like you say, Richard, and they, they sort of think, okay, well, it's a throwaway account. But the problem then is that 67% of the email addresses in that Sony breach had the same password as in the Gorka breach. So, okay, now we're actually starting to reuse passwords across accounts and things like Gawker are normally uh, commenting engines and that sort of thing. So we're actually starting to reuse accounts in places where, you know, you could actually start to impersonate someone and, and start to do some nasty things. Yep. So there's a really, really high propensity of reuse. What is Gawker? Can you tell us what that is? So Gorka, uh, as best I understand it, is a, I think they call themselves sort of a, a media publishing agency. Uh, they have websites underneath them like Gizmodo, uh, Lifehacker, and poor old Gorka back in late 2010 got breached uh, pretty significantly. So they had about 1.3 million accounts exposed. They used some pretty nasty encryption using DES rather than a hashing algorithm. And they uh, they had a, a very very large exposure that appears to have been the result of of some conflict between Gawker and and another website, and basically they got their whole database put up there on the internet. Oh, and you're what talking was interesting. You're talking about Gawker, G A W K E R. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you're saying. It's the whole accent been, thing. <laughs> it might have been the Australian accent version of Gawker. Yeah, got it. But it, but it's really interesting when you started comparing these different breaches and realize it's same passwords, it's the same problems over and over and over again. Yeah, and you know where it gets really interesting as well is that you have a breach like Gorka, and then suddenly other things start happening. So after Gorka, there was a lot of tweeting about Asahi berries. You know, now what has Gorka got to do with Asahi berries? Well, what was happening was people were using the same passwords for Gorka as they were Twitter. So now suddenly, whether it's the attackers or somebody else, because, hey, it's all public now, it could be anyone, right? Uh, these accounts are now getting reused to, to do a little bit of marketing for the berry. Yeah. Yeah, interesting that this is the reality of it and people are just going to get rolled up. And I, the funny part about, say, the Stratford breach is it's not a technical breach. That's not a technical website. These are regular mortals. You're seeing what, what law enforcement people and military people and, and folks that are just interested in geopolitics are, are getting gobbled up in. Absolutely. And it's pretty grim. The passwords are pretty simple. They cracked a whole bunch of credit card numbers, too. Hmm. So the interesting thing with Stratfor is after they were compromised and there's a bit of contention about who it was. Because they were compromised by Anonymous. Right. Well, you know, this is the interesting thing. So that... But the problem is, who are these guys? <laughs> and, and <laughs> They're do, anonymous. Do you, do you trust your hacker to tell you that they are who they think they are? Um, but what was interesting is that, that, you know, we had the normal sort of releases on Pastebin and on Twitter where uh, someone with an anonymous-like account is saying, okay, it's anonymous, we breached you. And then you get another anonymous come up and go, no, it wasn't us, you know, we don't do that sort of thing, these guys are innocent. And you're sort of going, you know, I can't even trust my hackers anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you, you know, you don't know who it was. 
But look, either way, they put a lot of credit card details up there. It was tens of thousands of credit card details. Yeah. And according to the original hackers, they said, well, look, we're going to start using these credit card details to make donations to charities. You know, this is going to be our little sort of Robin Hood moment. Um, now, that, of course, is probably not going to end up real well for the charities because the owners of the card, if they can sort of get over their conscience, will probably cancel <laughs> the transactions anyway. Yeah. But what was interesting is that as the days progressed and because all these credit cards were now out there on the internet, you then start getting people saying, hey, uh, my card has just been used to buy video games, uh, you know, to buy software off the net. And I had a chat to a couple of these people and said, look, you know, are you really sure this is from Stratfor? You know, this didn't come from somewhere else. And they, they said, you know, look, th this is it. This is the only place it could have come from and the timing and everything. So the extent of a breach like Stratfor, it, it just goes on and on and on. And yeah. it's going to make life really, really hard on a lot of people. It's a very ironic break-in. Well, and like you said, we don't really know who did it. The, the, what's interesting now, of course, Stratfor's website's still down. Yeah. Like they're mm. still there. All there is is one page saying, Hey, we've been hacked and we're working on it. Like it's, and it's been a couple of weeks. All right. Let's get back to the list. The of top 10 application security risks. I believe we were on uh, number four insecure direct object references. Yeah. So insecure direct object reference is when we're exposing a reference to an internal object via an externally visible resource. So, for example, you might be on a banking site and you'll see an account number in the URL. And that account number will naturally map back to some sort of key in the database. Now, the risk with an insecure direct object reference is that if I start manipulating that account number, can I pull somebody else's bank account back? And this is what happened with Citibank last year. So, Citibank allowed someone to just start manipulating the URL and, you know, hey, I've got somebody else's bank account here. So that Oops. one's a real, a real worry, um, particularly when we're talking about natural sort of keys or incrementing keys where it's easy to just add a one to a, a long number and then suddenly you get a different record. And the underlying problem with insecure direct object references is access control. So there was not the proper access control to say, hey, is the person who is authenticated in this session actually allowed to access that record? So that is you know, fundamentally the thing that needs to be done right. The other option with an insecure direct object reference is to use what you'd call an indirect object reference map, where you have a map which might persist in the session, and that map would say, okay, well, look, let's take that bank account number keep that internal and let's map it to a nice sort of cryptographically random key that we'll expose externally. Uh, so, you know, you can't then go through and change that to any logical or natural sort of key and then we'll throw the whole thing away at the end of the session so that no one else can use it either. Yeah. Uh, you know, this seems like a good place to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Awesome. So what we have here, Troy, is the .NET Rocks fan club where um, you can just go to our website and sign up for the fan club. we got over 600 members now. And every show, we pick a lucky winner from people who've signed up, and they get a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Today's winner is Arlen Mast from Lenexa, Kansas. Congratulations, Arlen. Nice. And in case you don't know what uh, the fan club is, just go to .netrocks.com. 
Look for the Get Free Stuff button, click it, and sign up. We're going to be giving away a lot of stuff, including $5,000 worth of computer technology next December. So you want to do that. All right, let's get back to our list. Um, Cross-site request forgery. I don't believe I've ever heard of that. I mean, it, I can kind of grok what that means, but I didn't know that there was a name for it. <laughs> yeah, so cross-site request forgery, also often seen referred to as CSRF. The idea of a CSRF attack is that uh, an attacker tries to trick someone's browser into issuing a malicious request. So an example of that might be we're on our banking site, we want to transfer money. Now, when we click the submit button, we're making uh, probably a post request with a few form parameters. So a CSRF attack would be, well, what if we can trick the browser into making exactly that same request, but we'll launch it from somewhere else? So, for example, if an attacker could stand up a website Uh, They might just use a bit of JScript on that site to make the same sort of post uh, with the right form parameters. If they can get someone to have their browser execute that post, so maybe they use a bit of cross-site scripting to make it happen, maybe they use a bit of social engineering, you know, send a really uh, attractive-sounding tweet to the person with Mm. a a t.co shortened link, (laughs) that could work. Uh, and, you know, this is the thing as well, like these little uh, link obfuscators that can shorten and, and hide all sorts of nasty things behind them are a nice little launching pad for this sort of attack. So to mitigate CSRF, we've got a couple of different approaches. So one thing we can do is, is use what they call a synchronizer token. And this synchronizer token pattern tries to set a unique ID somewhere in the form and then it makes sure that that unique ID is actually submitted with the form request. Uh, So, you know, the the page which is receiving that request would say, hey, did you send me this right ID, which I've persisted probably in session on the way through to make sure that what comes in in the form is what I expected to get uh, when you submit it. Now, the reason why that works is because if we then have an external site which has got some sort of static launch pad for a malicious request, it's not going to have that token. So mm. it sort of adds that little bit of randomness into, into the process. So that works fine in a web forms app. Or mind you, if you're in MVC, then you've got the HTML helper, which is the anti-forgery token. Yeah. So it's really, really easy to drop into MVC. And then you can just decorate the controller which receives that post with a validate anti-forgery token uh, declaration. And you've got a nice little sort of native uh, synchronizer token. Yeah, nice. So, you know, those work well as sort of technical controls. And then there is more sort of social controls. So things like a a capture. Okay, so you could always put a capture in there. Now, they drive people nuts. So then you've got the usability trade-off. But a capture is a pretty secure way of avoiding CSRF. And the browsers are also getting better as well. So the browsers are getting better at defending against things like CSRF where it sees that there's a request coming from another origin, so coming from another site. And the browsers are now sort of starting to say, well, hang on a second, you know, this this might not be such a good thing. And they're doing the same sort of thing with, say, cross-site scripting as well. So fortunately, uh, the, the client is getting a little bit smarter as well. Hey, Troy, do you uh, think we need to encrypt the web config file in any particular way? And do you have a preferred way to go about it? 
Well, look, I think anything sensitive in the web.config you want to encrypt, uh, particularly if you're going to be putting it in any sort of version control. So, you know, things like connection strings, any app keys that might be sensitive. Easiest way to do that is just to use the ASP.NET uh, native encryption, which you can run from a, a Visual Studio command prompt uh, to nicely encrypt everything. And then if it's not uh, not running on the machine in which the encryption was done, it's it's not going to come undone. Right. Now, that's not going to be perfect because if somebody gets root on the machine, well, you know, you've probably got a lot of other big problems anyway. But certainly you, you want to be in a position where your web.config can be passed around without it disclosing anything like credentials. Awesome. Yeah, Yeah, just protecting those bits because you can't tie it down totally. I think it's also a thought about what you shouldn't put in your web config file at all. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, that's a a pretty persistent sort of security concept as well. You know, what's the least amount of stuff we can get away with having to look after? You know, do we really need those credit card details? Or do we really need that person's gender or birth date or some other piece of information, whether it be data from users or or credentials or things stored in the app? You know, let's just get rid of everything that we don't have to have because if we don't have it, it, it can't be breached. Yeah, true enough. Okay, uh, security m- misconfiguration, or do we were we just talking about that? Well, I think we were sort of talking about that because security misconfiguration, it's, it's a little bit like that broken authentication session management from earlier on, and yeah. that it's kind of a little bit generic. So, you know, my interpretation of security misconfiguration for .NET, um, first of all, it's, it's things like keeping frameworks up to date. And IWASP does talk about particularly keeping frameworks up to date under this vulnerability. So something like NuGet, for example, is perfect for keeping frameworks up to date uh, because it's just so simple now. And keeping frameworks up to date is important because often frameworks get updated because there might be security vulnerability in them. So, you know, try and and stay current with those guys. Uh, Other really simple things that most people are probably aware of in ASP.NET are things like uh, making sure custom errors are turned on and there's a default redirect page. It's amazing how many websites are out there where if they throw an error, you're going to get a yellow screen of death and you might get a stack trace and that stack trace might have some internal implementation details that then allow you to leverage an exploit somewhere else. Uh, disabling debugging. You know, all of this sort of basic configuration stuff is really important. Right. And it's also stuff that we tend to leave till the end. Right, not think about. Not think about until, you know, okay, now we're we're almost ready to ship. Now let's secure it. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And, you know, the other thing with the configuration as well is that it's the sort of thing that is really easy to miss later on. So, you know, six months after you launch, you get a little bug and you say, oh, I'm just going to turn off custom errors just for a moment just to see how it works. Yeah. And then you get busy and you forget. <laughs> you know, and yeah. now your website is sitting up there with yellow screens of death. Yeah. Or worse, source code turned nice. debugging on. Spewing outward. Yeah. Uh, part seven, insecure cryptographic storage. Yeah, so this is where it gets really interesting. So when we talk about cryptography, we're talking about encryption and we're talking about hashing. And again, courtesy of Stratfor, we've got a really good lesson on both of those uh, from uh, from just back at Christmas. So with uh, hashing in particular is probably the one that most of us are going to come across. And the idea of hashing is a hash is a deterministic one-way 
process of taking one string and turning it into something else uh, that appears kind of random. Now, hashing we use extensively for passwords. So anytime we store a password anywhere in a database, we want it to be hashed because if it's in plain text and the database gets compromised, well, you know, it, it, it's game over. Everything's out there. So when we create a hash of a password, we can reliably recreate the same hash at any time when the person logs on. So we create a hash of hopefully a nice strong password. It sits in the database in that hashed format. It can't be reversed, so you can't take that hash and undo it. You can't actually sort of apply the algorithm in reverse. And what happens then is we get someone to log on and we apply the same process to the password that they enter. And then we match the usernames together and we compare it. And again, something like the ASP.NET membership provider does all of this together in one go. Ah. Now, the thing about hashing, though, is that because it is deterministic, and by deterministic we mean that if we apply the algorithm to one string once, it will always have the same output every other time we apply it, no matter where it is, no matter what language, what machine. Right. So the problem is, is that once you have a hash of a password, every single time that password is used anywhere, it's very easy to find it. And in fact, what you'll find, and again, Stratfor gave us this lesson, all of the hashes of their passwords, you can Google most of those. Google is an awesome password cracking machine, you know, because you can just put a hash in there. Huh. And there are so many online lists of passwords that have been hashed where you get the hashed version and right next to that, hey, here's the plain text version. Oh, man. That makes it very, very vulnerable. Um, now, the other thing is, is that you've also got what we call a rainbow table. And a rainbow table is effectively a means of pre-computing the hashes for a whole bunch of different passwords. And, you know, when we say a whole bunch, we're talking millions, hundreds of millions, where the rainbow table has literally gone through and said, give me every password between six and ten uh, lowercase characters uh, and numbers. And that gives you a fairly sort of constrained uh, collection of passwords. Now, the rainbow table pre-computes all of these and it does it in a very, very efficient way and then allows you to plug in a password list of hashes and it will just go through and find all the ones that match very, very quickly and, okay, here's all your plain text. So what we need to do with passwords before we hash them is add a bit of randomness and this randomness is what we call the salt. And again, the membership provider does all of this natively, so it's good to understand these concepts, but the best thing you can do is actually not have to build it. So the salt is this random piece of data that gets added to the password before it gets hashed, mm. so that when the hash is actually computed, it doesn't matter if you have the same password twice, you have different hashes. Now, you could still go through and brute force that. So you could say, look, you know, I want to go through and, and take this salt and add it to every password between six and ten characters, but it's going to take you a whole lot of time. And you've got to do that then for every single password because every single password has got a unique uh, salt. So what it does is it makes it computationally extremely expensive to break passwords that have salted hashes. So when we talk about insecure cryptographic storage and we talk about passwords, we want to make sure that we have a good strong hashing algorithm. So in .NET, at the very least, we start with one of the SHA variants. So by default, the membership provider takes SHA-1. SHA-1. That's the one. Uh, we can go 256 or 512 in .NET as well. Um, and a lot of people say, look, you know, you really should be using one of these sort of adaptive hashing algorithms like bcrypt that 
that sort of take computationally more expensive time to, to, to compute hashes so that you can't, you know, undo things as fast. Did you say, I think the main- the, I'm sorry, did you say bcrypt? Yeah, B-C-R-Y-P-T. So bcrypt is, is probably one of the more popular um, adaptive algorithms uh, for hashing. Okay. It's not built in natively to .NET. Hopefully we'll, we'll see it before too long. And that's becoming very, very popular. I think, though, as just as a starting point, you know, if we could just get people, A, hashing, <laughs> because as we saw from Sony last year, that doesn't always happen, and yeah. B, applying salts, and we know from just the other week that that doesn't always happen, you know, that is a, a fundamentally better place to be than not doing either of those. And these smarter algorithms and things are, are great objectives to, to move towards, uh, but I, I think we're sort of a long way away from that on a broad basis at the moment. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Do you think we need a secure storage library? Basically, you know, the same way that we know the membership provider simply takes care of this for us. Shouldn't we have a more general, shouldn't Entity Framework do this for us? We turn on the secure storage mode and it just does it? Yeah, I guess ultimately that's got to persist it somewhere, hasn't it? Yeah, and I want to take it off the hands of the developer. It's like, flick this switch, provide these values, now it's secured. Well, you know, I think anything that we can abstract away from having to build manually, and, and not just because we, we sort of go, okay, well, we don't trust the developer, but just to take the workload away, to do it once, to do it properly, to do it solidly, that's a really positive thing. So, you know, if, if there was a, a feature like that, I'd be very supportive of it. Huh. <laughs> but, you know, and you, I think you bring up another valid point, which is none of this is bulletproof. You're just trying to make it awkward, right? It's like, well, the, the product we have up in North America, the thing called the club, that you put on your steering wheel. Right. Because, it, mm. and it doesn't make your car impossible to steal. It just makes it awkward so that somebody steals a different car. That's it. And, you know, I think the the trick with application security is to remember that everything is, is just layers of difficulty, right? We're just trying to make it harder and harder and harder. So no one single layer is going to make you bulletproof. So what do we do? We do things like, uh, okay, let's use uh, input validation and then let's parameterize our SQL commands and then let's make sure that our database accounts don't have too many rights, and then let's use a strong hashing algorithm, and then let's use a cryptographically random salt. Right. If right. you get through all of that, you, you know, good on you. <laughs> You've done well. <laughs> yeah, but we've made right life ahead. very, very hard. Okay, let's move on uh, because we're running out of time here to number eight, failure to restrict URL access. I mean, well, there you go. That's what more can you say? Well, it, it, Restrict it's URL one, access. Can you go to an address and type forward slash admin after the URL and and suddenly take admin rights? Uh, it, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a surprisingly common scenario, uh, you know. And, and what often happens is someone will say, "Okay, well, look, what I'm going to do is, you know, you only get the link to the admin page once you log in." But then the admin page itself <laughs> isn't authenticated, so oh. it's it's just simply about uh, applying authentication controls and you know authorization controls and. 
one of the best ways to do that is to just go into your web.config and uh, and set your authorizations in there. You know, it's it's simple. It's yeah. easily configurable. It works well. I've gotten into the practice of actually making the administrative side of the website a different site. Yeah, that's what we do. Like literally running a, and it's not so much it's on a different machine, but it's running in a different domain security profile entirely. So, you know, it just doesn't have an anonymous option. It doesn't allow, you know, requires NT authentication and it's a different set of credentials. Yes, split it out. And then you can put all sorts of other access controls over it. You know, do I want to put it behind a VPN? Do I want to filter IP addresses? You, you can do all sorts of things that you can't do to a public site. Yeah. That you, yeah, I just think mixing the two is a mistake. For the handful of people who need to access it, you can afford to make that awkward. Mm-hmm. Sure thing. Okay, uh, insufficient transport layer protection. This is a big one, I think. Yes, it is. Yeah, it, it is a big one, and it's interesting because it's sort of down towards the end of the top ten, and it's it's more about a, a prevalence issue rather than the you know the potential damage you can do with the thing, because it is pretty serious. So you know what we're really talking about is SSL, or, or what we now know as TLS or, or transport layer security, mm-hmm. and. You know, in, in simple terms, we're talking about the little padlock, right, <laughs> next yeah. to the URL bar. Yeah, or the little green bar. That's that's the one. Yeah. And th- there's really three different things that Transport Layer Protection is giving us. So the first thing is it's giving us some authenticity of the site. So if you go to that little padlock or that little green bar, you should be able to see who that certificate was issued to, and you should have confidence that you are actually talking to that site. And it's not that the domain has been redirected or someone's intercepting the traffic or anything like that. So that's number one. Number two is that you get confidence that the content hasn't been manipulated in transit. Mm -hmm. So you, you get this sort of data integrity uh, confidence. So somebody hasn't, uh, say, changed the target of where the logon form posts to. Okay, that's that's a pretty important one. And that's a real one too. So in Tunisia, a little while back when they had their issues uh, with government and politics and all that sort of thing, what transpired was that the government-owned ISPs were injecting a little bit of JavaScript into Facebook logon pages. Oh. So you'd go to facebook.com now, when you type in facebook.com, your browser is going to default to HTTP, so it's plain text over the wire. You've got no confidence about the integrity of the data, so these ISPs are injecting this little bit of JavaScript which says, when I log on, I'm going to send my credentials off to blah, 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 dot gov. <laughs> okay, so the government was actually stealing these credentials. Good um, Lord. Now, since then, we have more availability of HTTPS over Facebook, not entire availability, but yeah. by loading that logon page over HTTPS, we get confidence that, hey, this is actually coming from who it's meant to be and it hasn't been changed. So number two was about making sure that content's not manipulated. Now, number three is the one that we probably most regularly associate with uh, SSL, and that is that my data hasn't been read in transit. So whether I'm logging onto a form and my username and password haven't been read or I'm loading my bank account and my details haven't been read, that's the third benefit, and that's what we most commonly think about. But what's really important with transport layer security as well is that once you authenticate, you've got to stay over HTTPS because what's persisting your session is some form of authorization cookie. Now, if I log on to Facebook over HTTPS and then I go to HTTP and I'm still logged on, I'm sending that little authentication cookie backwards and forwards in the clear. 
And this is where fire sheep came into being. So if everyone remembers, a little while back we had fire sheep where there was a Firefox plug-in and you could go to a wireless uh, access point somewhere and you'd see everybody else on the network who was logged onto Facebook and you could hijack their sessions. So that was the risk of not having HTTPS everywhere. So that's a really, really important part of proper transport layer security. Now, I don't mean to be a party pooper here, but we've got our problems with TLS as well. Yeah, so this is this is always the thing, isn't it? There's no uh, there's no silver bullet. So no. TLS has had a few interesting things lately. So obviously we've had uh, DigiNota, and we've had uh, Komodo Gate before that as well, where the actual. I mean, I think we need to tell people what this. This is falling clearly into the IT side of these problems. Yeah, I have, for you guys, guys are, run the infrastructure. You guys are speaking Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you a little plug here and say, listen to uh, Richard's chat with uh, Barry Dorans <laughs> a little while ago on Ronez Radio about oh, thanks. Uh, about DigiNota because that was a, a very good overview. But in really simple terms, we depend on what we call certificate authorities or CAs to issue certificates. And the integrity and security of the certificate authority is really important because if these guys get breached and you could start to issue certificates, uh, let's say for Google or for Microsoft, then suddenly you undermine the entire being of, of what uh, of what SSL is because you can just start randomly issuing certificates. So when your CA gets hacked, well, you know, hey, you've got a problem with the foundation of, of TLS. But, you know, it's not just that as well. We've also seen uh, TLS challenged by things like SSL strip. Uh, and SSL strip, what this guy did, and this was from a guy called Moxie Marlin Spike, good name. Uh, but anyway, what Moxie did is he said, okay, let's, let's catch that first HTTP request. So when I say HTTP or when I just say facebook.com and my browser defaults to HTTP, let's do a little man in the middle where we're going to take that request and we're going to proxy it backwards and forwards to the server. So I'm going to keep getting HTTPS responses from the server, but then I'm going to keep sending HTTP back to the client. What do they so stub Winsock DLL to do that? How do they do that? Well, I don't know, but he got down pretty low level and he basically managed to to, to, to literally be in the middle of this communication. Uh, and, you know, the end user has no idea that this is happening. And he might do that on a wireless network somewhere. He might uh, patch into a switch and, and intercept the traffic in there. You know, there are a lot of different ways, a lot of different points where traffic transits the network where it can be hijacked. And as soon as we have to start with an HTTP request, we're kind of, you know, we're always kind of at the mercy of the strength of HTTP, which is not mm. that secure over the network. That's one of the, I worked on a project once actually, um, where it was a, uh, a product that was kind of like net nanny. You know, there was a list, it was a, a white list of URLs that were approved and a black list of URLs that were not. And uh, what we did was we stubbed Winsock DLL because in Windows, everything goes through Winsock. You know, Winsock is the fundamental, that's sockets, that's the fundamental OS network communications DLL. And by stubbing, I mean, we made a version of it that had the same interfaces and then made the, pass the calls through to the actual Winsock DLL, which got renamed. And, uh, yeah, that it, it worked. 
And, and you know, and it is an exploit vector that's been closed now because Windows now closely monitors its core DLL. Yeah, and this, if you try and do anything to it, it freaks this out. This was back in Windows ninety five days, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting problem. Hey, we got one more. Yeah. So last to the top ten, unvalidated redirects and forwards. Now, this one's interesting because it's a little bit contentious as well. But basically what an unvalidated redirect and forward is, is, you know, you think about a website where, uh, let's say, for example, you click on an external link. And on the way out, this website takes you to another page and says, hey, look, you're leaving this site. We can't be responsible for anything that happens. Thanks for coming. You know, click here to continue. And to try and get a bit of reuse, which is all well and good, everyone wants to get reuse, what they'll do is use a generic page for that uh, you're exiting the site and they'll just pass the external site in the query string. Now, what that means is, is that I can request that exit page with any URL that I like in the query string. So I could then construct a request that has a legitimate domain of a legitimate website and off the end of it in some massive big freaking query string, I could have my malicious site which then wants to install malware or do anything like that. Now the contention is is that that's probably not so much a vulnerability with that website uh, that's honestly hosting the redirect page. It's really an exploit that's off on an external site, and the first site is really just being used as a bit of a, a launching pad. Yeah. The problem, though, is that if I send someone a link and it's to Google.com and they get malware, you know, this person's going to go, "Hey, I went to Google.com and now suddenly my computer doesn't boot and I got all these banner ads and you know things like that on there." Right. So, you know, that site does become the direction of that person's uh, discontent. Now, Google have actually said, look, we're not going to offer bug bounties for unvalidated redirects. You know, we don't think it's a serious enough issue. We're going to try and mitigate it, but we don't treat it too seriously. So I think the lesson there really is if you can avoid an unvalidated redirect, then do it. And the way to avoid it is you need to have somewhere either a whitelist of external sites that you're happy to redirect to or you forego putting the URL in a query string altogether and you create, again, some sort of indirect object reference where you might say, all right, I'm just going to put, you know, 10 external URLs in a database. They're all going to have keys and then I'm just going to put the key in the URL and look it up when someone uh, when someone hits it. Right. Well, this is something that happens in comments and blogs and stuff all the time, right? It's like you're trying to embed the, the spammers embed links to misdirect people to things. But I think whitelisting is kind of tough, too, because you're going to end up blocking an awful lot of stuff. Yeah, that's not a good way to go. That's China. Well, the thing is, <laughs> it, I mean, in, in terms of, of a whitelist, what we're saying is is that my site knows which sites it would like to redirect to, okay? Right. So most of the time, you know, that, that that's fine because your site says, okay, look, I'm going to link out to some, you know, to, to Wikipedia, uh, to a particular page, and I'm going to link out to some other legitimate content. Um, so it's, it's almost the equivalent of if we had a hard-coded the whole thing before, but we're still using this one sort of redirect page. Uh, we've got a little bit of dynamic ability in that we've got maybe just one list where we say, look, these are the URLs that we're going to allow people to exit to. Hmm. Uh, so that works fine. Troy, we're, we're out of time, but I want you to tell us about a safer web before we go. All right, so a safer web, which is what's been keeping me uh, a little bit busy lately. So the idea of a safer web is that it's the automated security analyzer for ASP.NET websites. So it is actually an acronym. It does mean something. 
And what I wanted to do is create a little tool which would allow you to plug in the URL of uh, assumably an ASP.NET website and it'll come back and tell you if some of the things that we've spoken about today have not been configured properly. Uh, so, for example, it will say, hey, uh, you know, you didn't, uh, you didn't turn custom errors on and you don't have a default redirect page. Um, or, hey, your trace.axd file is accessible. So the idea is to try and find these vulnerabilities just by making little uh, do-no-harm sort of HTTP requests and to try and explain why this is a vulnerability and how can we fix it. Uh, and the neat thing about a safer web is that it's pretty easy for me to extend. So when we had the hash denial of service vulnerability that popped up um, and Microsoft have since patched only about a week ago, it was pretty easy to say, okay, look, let's build a scan to check if the hash DOS patch has been applied. Uh, and what I'd like to do is get people to use this to try and see if your apps uh, are secure. You know, so let's try and lock down ASP.NET as much as possible. Yeah, and I brilliant. I just ran it against uh, .NET Rocks, and it did not have that uh, patch applied. So I'm doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, as of today, good. about uh, about fifty percent of sites are coming back saying the patch is not installed. Uh, so I, I know that when I get back to the office, I've probably got a bit of work to do. Uh, but I think there's quite a few other people out there that might want to get that patch installed pretty quickly too, because. HashDOS will, will take you offline real fast. Yeah, very good. Troy Hunt, thank you very much. You've given us very good practical stuff here, and thanks for your ongoing blog posts and your ebook. It's just amazing to the, the amount of information we can get from your site. Thanks very much, guys. I've really enjoyed doing it. All right, Troy, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.